0: Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that explores the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. I am Bert Dreher, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic, Molecular, and Interventional Radiology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Icon School of Medicine, as well as a past president of the Radiologic Society of North America. I cordially invite you to sit back and relax as we journey through chest and cardiac imaging through the lens of the field's breathing experts. And now, from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York, it is my pleasure to introduce your host, Adam Bernheim, and
1: Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging. I am Adam Bernheim, and I'm joined, as always, by Mike Chung. Here we are in uh, spring 2020, where we're encountering a little bit of challenges. How are you hanging in there, Mike?
2: I am healthy and I'm well, uh, so thank God tr- to that. And it's been a very interesting start to 2020, to say the least.
1: Fortunately, we have somebody with us today who uh, is a career expert in pulmonary infection. So it's perfect timing to be hosting Dr. Lauren Kitai. He is a professor of radiology at the University of New Mexico. In fact, he's the former section chief of cardiothoracic imaging at that institution. Dr. Kitai... I began his medical career by obtaining an MD from the University of Michigan and then completed both an internal medicine residency and a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care at the University of Michigan as well. And then went on to continue to practice as a pulmonologist before then completing a radiology residency at the University of New Mexico. In addition, he is the Secretary of the Society of Thoracic Radiology and has developed a a career expertise in pulmonary infection. So we're delighted to be able to welcome today Dr. Lauren Kitai. How are you, Dr. Kitai?
3: I'm fine. Thank you, Adam.
2: We're so glad you're here today. Um, Hopefully you're able to solve the world's problems for us. Um, Uh, Yeah.
3: Well, you guys are doing a pretty good job, I think. (laughs) Uh,
2: Dr. Kitai, uh, just start us off a little bit about talking about your background, where you're from. We talked a little about a little bit about your initial training, but how did you get to go into medicine and then into radiology, and what drew you specifically to our field of thoracic imaging?
3: In brief, I was actually Ella Calru- Kazruni is a, is another graduate of a six year medical program they had at Michigan, oh, so wow. we got through combined undergrads. She's younger than she's considerably younger than me. We were able to. Get through, do our undergrad and medicine combined. And to be honest, at that point, you know, you start when you're 18, so you don't know exactly how you make decisions, but I liked it a lot, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. The Peace Corps wasn't taking doctors at that time and I wanted to do some volunteer work. I figured I had gained a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I volunteered to work in the Indian health service out here in New Mexico.
0: Hmm.
3: I worked on the Navajo reservation for a couple of years as a general medical officer after that. My wife and I got married. She's a physician as well. We went back to uh, Michigan to finish our training. You know, just like chest radiologists are maybe the nicest radiologists, I think pulmonologists are really a great group of people. I'd finished medicine. I'd gone back and finished medicine, and the pulmonary people were super nice at Michigan. And You know, you make decisions based on personality sometimes. So I stayed and trained, and then I went and taught for a year at Case Western, came out to New Mexico to work in an affiliate of university. And as we mentioned previously, um, for a variety of reasons, one is that there was no shift work in the ICU back then. So you never left the hospital. And the fact that I they were kind enough to let me start doing pulmonary angiography, even though I was a medicine person and was at that Loveless Hospital. on I thought, this is great fun. I'd like to do radiology. And so initially, I trained with the intent of doing both IR and pulmonary and, and thoracic radiology because I really knew and loved thoracic diseases. And, you know, there's a lot of interventions that can be done in the chest. So for about 15 years of my career in radiology, I did interventional as well. Um, But uh, the guys now, the stuff they do is far more complex than I ever attempted. So uh, after that time, I just have done strictly thoracic radiology. Were you at the University of Mexico since your training and up till now? Exactly, exactly. In terms of the infectious disease aspect. I mean, fate takes sort of funny turns. And I guess this is way back, but this was the center of the Hantavirus outbreak in the early 1990s. Mm. And that's when I first sort of, I mean, I always it was interested in infectious disease, but it was apparent that there was something unusual. I was still a resident at the time in radiology, but I Got very interested in that and started collecting cases and going out to the reservation and uh, sort of was there at the inception of that, about that Mm -hmm. epidemic, which I could tell you more about. I mean, and then after that, and my my chairman was great in encouraging me to do that. And then following that, I sort of got into writing about bioterrorism agents and also Mm -hmm. looking for other kinds of outbreaks, which we can talk about later if you'd like.
2: What is the thoracic radiology section like at the University of New Mexico? Um, what are typical volumes and case mixes? And um, what is also cardiac imaging like there?
3: Yeah, we're a small shop. And for most of my career, I've been by myself. For mm-hmm. short periods of time, I had some great colleagues. But unfortunately, they're only there for a few years. Mm-hmm. You probably, I don't know, you probably met Nat. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we know Nat well. She's fantastic. Yeah. So Nat was with me for a while. That was wonderful. So we've had some great people to help me, mm-hmm. but most of the time I've been myself. And now we have some new young people coming in. Um Jonathan Revels is trained in in University of Washington, both in chest chest fellowship and a body fellowship.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And a great young radiologist who's finishing her training at MGH, Jen Fibbo, is coming to start in July. So it's mm-hmm. getting bigger. I mean, most of my career was spent by myself but you you were like the guy i was was the guy
2: for chest imaging wow
3: for chest imaging and Mm -hmm. and that was you know challenging especially trying to do some ir at the same time Mm -hmm. and we've been doing cardiac imaging for a while you know starting early on and for a long time we'll do a case or two a day Mm -hmm. but really we're the only place in the state that does it on any with any consistent basis so we get referrals from a large very large geographic catchment area and so, you know, our volume is not anything like Emory, but I think it's continuing to grow. And it's just been, it's just been, I mean, a much different experience, I suspect, than, than you guys had in your careers, where it's wonderful to have other colleagues around to sort of bounce cases off. And it's a different sort of feeling when you know whether you're really right or wrong. People will take that as the gospel once you decide on what you think something is. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's really interesting for us to get an idea of what it's like to practice cardiothoracic imaging in New Mexico in general. Uh, are there any diagnoses that you might encounter more commonly there than
3: elsewhere? It's interesting you say that because I think, although I think if I just ask people from like the East Coast, well, they they think, oh, we'd see a lot of coxie, And we do see it occasionally, um, but not as much as the people down in Phoenix. And there's some altitude predilection. So, but it's something we always have in our differential. And I think it's it's probably... One of the more common causes like a benign nodule,
2: mm. a
3: benign large nodule that we see. And although the Hantavirus sort of, quote, epidemic has waned, we still continue to see episodic cases. And those patients are really sick. They often end up on ECMO. So although there are not many, they're still notable. And otherwise, I think our mix at my institution is what most of you might see in, a, in a, any hospital that has a predominantly indigent population. A lot of people, perhaps because we have a large undocumented community in the state, we may see a little bit more tuberculosis, and the neuro guys probably see more cirrhosis But otherwise, I think the case mix is probably common to what you what you might see at any other hospital. It does indigent care and is, and is a level one trauma center. Mm.
2: You spoke a bit about your kind of love of pulmonary infection or just infection in general. Did you have any mentors that kind of pushed you into that direction, or was it more of a, something that you kind of developed from your own self-desires?
3: You know, you owe a lot to a lot of people. I think I owe a lot to my chairman back when I started, Dr. Mettler, who's, who sort of encouraged me to become really involved in the Hantavirus you know, outbreak and its description. And then after that, and again, before your time, but wonderful, super famous neuroradiologist Ann Osborne, maybe you maybe read some of her texts in the past, sure. she, she was getting together, um, she wanted to do, start to do presentations at RSNA about emerging infections. She called up the CDC and asked for a chest radiologist, and they, they knew me from the hantavirus outbreak, and so they put her in contact with me, and that sort of, I think, was a real turning point with her. Mentorship and encouragement that I've sort of continued with particular interest in things that might be emerging infections, and and then some in bioterrorism as well, such as anthrax. That kind of an interest, really, and you guys, I know better than probably anybody else, requires that you really reach out to people around the world, like you did in terms of your initial review of cases of COVID from China. So, you know, I really to to make this work. I've often had to contact people who some of them I didn't, I didn't know initially in other parts of the world to help, uh, to put together something I'd be of interest in. You know, for instance, Thomas Franquette, I know, you know, who's, was always a super help, but sometimes I would call people who turned out to be really gracious, who I just got their names off the website, like infectious disease person down in Australia named Bart Curie is a sort of a delightful person to collaborate with. So. In this sort of infection, emerging infection world, and again, you guys, I'm speaking, I'm preaching to the choir here, but, you know, you really rely a lot on the goodwill and academic curiosity of people all over the place.
1: I think that's really fascinating. And it's true that we have a global community of collaboration where I think there are a lot of willing partners, particularly in in radiology, that sees collaboration for the greater good as something that's always a priority. So it's, it's terrific. And we're really fortunate to have so many wonderful colleagues globally. When I think about pulmonary infection, and I kind of look at it from a 30,000 foot view and, and have some perspective of thinking about the topic in general, I think one of the things that comes to mind is that a lot of radiologists struggle to provide specificity when encountering a chest radiograph or chest CT in a patient with infection. Do you have a particular approach that you utilize when trying to determine the etiology of an infection for a particular case? Are there any helpful clues you might be willing to share with us to provide some specificity?
3: And I think that's interesting because I think a lot of my career is, I don't know if bias is the right word, but has been influenced by the fact that I was initially a clinician. That sort of stays in your blood a bit. My feeling is, I'm, I am like to think about if you're communicating with a good physician, they're using what you say on, the, on your interpretation as not the final word, but as something that they're going to put into the mix with the laboratory evaluation and their own clinical acumen history, of course, is the key. When I approach infections, a lot of the times I'm, I'm thinking, okay, the most important thing is when I, and when I lecture on this is to try to identify an infection um, and then identify complications. And when I say identify an infection, differentiate that from non-infectious causes that might have a similar clinical presentation. And that most of the time... I'm not going to be able to tell people, I'm not striving to try to tell people what the organism is. Mm-hmm. So to put that in, you know, in context, there, you know, the simple things that we see all the time, knowing that, you know, infections are very likely to cause a predominantly interlobular septal thickening picture. And that, you know, once you're confident that you see tree and bud opacities, that you're confident there's an infection. And then, you know, in the correct clinical context, yes, we can do better. If I happen to know it's a bone marrow transplant patient and I see a very large nodule, I mean, a greater than a centimeter nodule, I know that's predictive for fungus, maybe an anti-invasive fungus, et cetera. So I could go through those. The listeners probably are familiar with all those, but the way I'm really approaching it is I'm saying, okay, if I'm the clinician, first thing I want to know is, is there really something there? And then do I think it's more likely infection or do I think that they should consider an alternative diagnosis? And then I'm looking for complications. And if I get lucky and I can hit a home run with suggesting an organism, wonderful. But that's not, I think, our primary goal. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make sense at all? <laughs> I hope.
2: Yeah, it makes total sense. I know this is a overarching question, but could you point out any pearls or any major significant things that you've learned over the course of your career just regarding infections? Um, Furthermore, are there any like any more outstanding questions that you would like to even see answered?
3: You know, that's fascinating. That's a good, interesting question. The thing that I've learned the most when dealing, trying to dealing with infections, is to be humble, <laughs> because <laughs> when, you know you you do think that you've got something char- well characterized, and then you're always surprised. If anything, I still think that the diagnosis of infection is best made by somebody who's a skilled clinician. In other words, despite the presence of BNP and procalcitonin, which are more widely used as on the clinical side, and some of the findings that we can say that help, I think that we can provide our input, but it's really important to try to encourage people to come to a clinical diagnosis that's a compilation of all those. The other thing that I think is sort of interesting over time is how, at least my understanding of some presentations has changed. I think during my career, the appreciation for and the incidence, of course, as well, of non-tuberculous mycobacteria as as a cause for cavitary disease mm-hmm. has dramatically changed. And so like, we're thinking of that instead of tuberculosis like we were 25 years ago. And then the recognition of chronic cavitary aspergillosis as being a major problem is something that has changed a lot. So it's interesting to sort of see the perspective of the same findings 20 years later, are going to generate a different differential diagnosis. Mm
2: -hmm. Depending on the era that we live in, and I I guess even geographic location, Yeah, it all plays a factor. Yes, yes. Yes. So kind of what you're hinting at, just based on how you approach infection, if we can kind of turn to the topic of COVID-19, it it kind of fits in with the STR stance on what role imaging plays with COVID-19 and what role radiologists should play with this new pandemic, could you just talk a little bit about what it was like to, for the STR executive committee to come down with that statement of the CT's role in the current state of this disease?
3: Yeah. And I, and I think that you're right. I think that that fits very well with, with the understanding that diagnoses are really a compendium of other findings, because I think that on the one hand, and you guys, you know, you, I mean, you guys are celebrities. I mean, you know, you've, I've seen you at I've seen you on television That's just Adam. Adam, And Adam, I have to say, I've even had residents, ex-residents of mine texting me that they saw a chest radiologist on television. How? Well,
1: nothing compares to the importance of this podcast. That's really really (laughs) the the, the highlight.
3: But, you know, I think that on the one hand, you know, all of us believe that it's not that COVID-19 looks like anything. It's how to use... I hate to use the word typical, but let's just go with that for now. Some typical radiogra- radiologic findings mm-hmm. in the setting of a population. Right. And I know just to harken back a little bit, you know, some of the findings that we talk about, the subperipheral sort of organizing pneumonia-like or organizing pneumonia picture that you guys have described, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If you remember back, and it might be for time, to the H1N1 epidemic, it's interesting that the sort of classic findings on that at that time were similar, peripheral, ground glass, looking like organized pneumonia, and a paucity of small airway disease. Mm -hmm. Although you wouldn't, every time I see that in the course of the rest of the year, I might not suggest a diagnosis. At the time when we were seeing 30 cases a day in the emergency room, if you happen to see that on a CT done for whatever Another purpose you would strongly suggest that this looked like this was H1N1. So, you know, I think that you guys have done a great job describing the findings. Just a lot of, there a lot of very good fine papers coming out of China as well. And I think the hard question for people is going to be how to integrate that into healthcare and the availability of PCR testing at in their locality, mm-hmm. et cetera. So I think when we around the table, we thought, well, look at the, at that point in time, the pretest probability in the in the U.S. at large was not high. We right. knew that there could be a lot of other illnesses, you know, drug-induced orga- organizing pneumonia that could have an identical position and that the ultimate sensitivity and specificity of CT was limited and so that it didn't, at that point in time, seem to, likely to play a major role in making the diagnosis, especially when you consider the implications for contagion to other patients and to the technologists, et cetera, and the CT scanners. I think that we're weighing the low pretest probability, despite some characteristic radiographic findings, but the low care, low specificity of those in the population at large against the risks of putting healthcare workers and other patients at risk in the radiology department. And it seemed a pretty straightforward decision at that time. I don't know Mike was at the table too. Did I summarize that correctly? That was perfect.
2: That was a, a fly on the wall and just watching. And I, I think that's the statement that had to come out just given the moment. It's something that's obviously fluid and I think we can't really predict the future, but it was perfect for its time, I think. Yeah. Dr. Kita, you you authored a 2006 article in JTI entitled Radiology of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS, the Emerging Pathologic Radiologic Correlates of an Emerging Disease. This has perhaps renewed uh, some discussion in in light of COVID-19, obviously. For those of us who weren't necessarily practicing radiology during the SARS epidemic, what was that like? And in retrospect, is there something that you can carry on from that to uh, to what's going on today?
3: To be entirely candid, I was putting together an issue for JTI and the co-authors on that paper, like Narendra Paul, and said, really were the people that had seen the cases. So I can't really give you a good perspective at the ground zero level. They sent me the cases, they were great collaborators, Dr. Wong as well. So I did a lot of the writing and put stuff together, but to really give you a flavor for what it would be like at ground zero, then I can't, unfortunately I can't. Mm -hmm. I would like to say one other, it's not off topic. In that same issue, there was, we wrote something up about emerging diseases in relation to natural disasters.
2: Yeah, could you talk a little bit about that work?
3: To use the word natural disasters a little bit more broadly, I think that's something that we're going to see more of. And that's vector-borne diseases. Although COVID arose in another species, it's really not vector-borne And a lot of other diseases that plague mankind are stuff that are vector-borne, you know, whether it's malaria or there's been a huge upsurge in dengue in the Americas over the last 10 years. I think as climate changes, the vector-borne diseases are going to change their distribution. Mm. And that's something that we're going to have to be more aware of. So in that paper, we talked about some diseases that had become more prevalent following major hurricanes or major flooding, or even after earthquakes. Mm-hmm. So as the environments disturb, certain pathogens become more prevalent. So there was a big outbreak of COXI in California after the Northridge earthquake, for instance. As I said, you know, dengue has been a problem. The CDC started looking for increasing de- incidence of dengue hemorrhagic fever as the incidence has increased. And in doing so, they uncovered an outbreak of leptospirosis, which was related mm-hmm. to climate change probably as well. Or possibly. So, anyways, I think just going forward, when the environment's disturbed, it also disturbs the ecology of infectious agents. And that's something we'll have to sort of be cognizant of as well, I'm sure.
2: Fascinating. As someone who's seen so many infections in your career, are there any unique stories or anecdotes you could share, like any of the strangest infections you might have just
3: seen in person? <laughs> You know, I think one thing I just, which I think may be important for this time as well, infections are scary for people. And I think that it's important to think about when we're investing in infections, think about the impact it's having on people on the other side. And I really. Take this back to the Hantavirus epidemic, I mean, Hantavirus outbreak we had here. You know, we didn't know what it was. It was an unknown agent at that time. There were a lot of rumors. Some of those you hear currently about, oh, it was really a biologic agent that was accidentally released, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the other thing is that the Navajo population was sort of suspicious of all the attention because nobody wanted to be stigmatized as the originator of a new infection. I think that was something that I learned from that. There were some bad feelings generated from that. And in fact, and again, something that might be applicable today, when it finally came time to name the virus, and you guys are probably familiar with a lot, there's West Nile virus, there's Marburg virus, there's Ebola virus. Mm-hmm. Most viruses are named after the place they originate. Mm-hmm. But really nobody wanted that stigma on the, out on the reservation. And nobody really knew exactly you know what's a point source. So ultimately, if you look in the books now, the Hantavirus is, that's why it's called the Sin Nombre virus, because mm-hmm. we nobody wanted to have it named after them. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I think we've seen that also with COVID-19. It was initially, the first couple of weeks, people called it the Wuhan virus, and then the World Health Organization uh, ended up referring to it as the novel coronavirus, and eventually COVID-19, which is actually a lead-in to another thing that's been on my mind. And I'm curious to get your take about this, which is that The decision to call this COVID-19 is almost a recognition or an an admission that in future seasons, we may see other variants of coronavirus infection. The fact that the World Health Organization decided to call this COVID-19 was almost recognizing that it's almost inevitable that we may see other coronavirus infections emerge in future years, and we might as well have a organized nomenclature system. So we'll start with COVID-19. Do you think that uh, this year with COVID-19 is an anomaly, or do you hypothesize that we might expect over the course of our lifetimes that we may see future years where this type of pandemic uh, may very well reemerge in different forms?
3: You know. That's interesting because back in the day, when Ann Osborne approached me to, to talk on emerging diseases, it happened to be a Nobel laureate who was in that same session. She, Ann, was such a dynamic person; she got him to speak. He showed like six slides, and it was the most fascinating talk I've ever seen. Which shows that it can be content, not necessarily our audio, our audiovisual. And the thing I remember about that is he talked about how humanity has this relationship with viruses that we forget about, things that we have now with us that were zoonosis, like probably herpes virus, for instance, um, and that this process has been going on for 10,000 years. So that process has been going on. And certainly as there are more people in the world and we're in more contact with parts of the natural world that maybe we haven't been, that yeah, I think it's not a brand new thing. It just happens at a more accelerated pace. It's interesting in the COVID nineteen. I'm not sure that the next thing will be a coronavirus. Of course, it could be something that we haven't really thought about too much. Yeah, I think that's. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that's it, it's an acknowledgement that it's something that we're gonna have to learn more about, and you know, there may not be respiratory infection. Next one could be CNS. Mm, it's
2: very true, Doctor Kitai. What are your thoughts on the role of Uh, dictation guidelines when it comes to COVID-19, especially in the current state of this pandemic where the use of that term coronavirus or COVID-19 in the body or impression of your report could set off alarm bells, uh, especially in places where there's not as good communication between radiology and infectious disease. Do you think that there should be any kind of societal guidelines or organizational guidelines regarding what terminology should be included in chest imaging reports?
3: You know, I think that you guys are, first of all, you guys are really smart guys because, and it's good, I feel good to know that there's smart young radiologists coming up because uh, I was thinking about that question. I just, I
1: just learned from Mike. It's all, it's all Mike. No, I just no, learned no, from
3: him. No. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to both of you. That was bothering me because, you know, I, we were, again, we have very few cases here, but people are attuned to it. So people have been sending me, while I've been home, mm-hmm. you know, cases. What do you think about this? Or, you know, should I just say it's viral? And I just got an email from Jeff Canney just today. And that's, I think, still Jeff's approach is mm-hmm. to say, you know, viral infections are a consideration. But thinking about that, having that experience, seeing what Jeff wrote, and I, I wrote to the other people on our executive consult today mm-hmm. and said, you know, in areas that have an exponentially increasing pretest probability, and mm-hmm. well, yes, it's still true that PCR is the best way to make the diagnosis, et cetera. But what about the person who comes in and gets a PECT and you happen to see something right. that looks worried some that fits a pattern that is seen in of COVID nineteen? What would be the appropriate thing to do? Mm-hmm. And I don't have enough experience and I'm not smart enough to know what I know enough to write, to to ask the question. Mm -hmm. And I know it's, and I know enough to think that it's going to be an important question, Mm -hmm. but I don't know enough to know the answer. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be something, you know, we're going to have to all talk about. Right. What do you guys think? So our initial
2: thought was that there should be some sort of societal guidelines either from the STR or ACR where, they provide some help for not necessarily just chest radiologists because we definitely do need that help, but for any emergency ED radiologist or abdominal radiologist who are just reading uh, chest imaging and mm-hmm. might incidentally see something and how to approach it like that. But I think the feedback we've gotten from this idea is it, it's hard to create universal guidelines ultimately when it comes to dictations and. Ultimately, though, I think raising the question, like you said, is the most important thing in this time, because I think a lot of people aren't thinking of those questions and are just throwing out those terms very freely um, without any care, just based on, uh, you know, images, comparing it to images that were published on an, in a journal. So I, I think it's a dangerous thing, especially because now in the setting where patients have access to their medical records and can see yeah, their reports point. and... Um, they can see that someone recommended said potential coronavirus, but their clinician did not give them the PCR swab. So I, I just think those questions, it's something that should be raised from a higher entity.
3: How do you write that so that, because at this point in time, what's applicable in New York City is not applicable in Albuquerque, New Mexico?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I just think a lot of our like our colleagues, our friends around the nation who don't do chest imaging are just asking, they're, they're essentially just telling me we're, th- we're throwing COVID-19 on every report now. <laughs> I don't think that's um, what should be done. And again, like you said, it depends on the location you're in. So it's all very uh, interesting
3: stuff. I mean, you just might even say that even if we'd said that, don't throw it on unless you see X, <laughs> right, <laughs> even right. if it's just a negative statement, mm-hmm. don't don't even raise the question unless you see blah. Right. Or if you see extensive tree and bud opacities, it's unlikely to be COVID.
2: Right, the negatives might be even more helpful in that sense. Yeah.
3: You know, I was thinking about that. That might be useful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that you say that, because I really didn't even think about the fact that people, I'm sort of, I'm surprised mm-hmm. for to have you guys tell me that people are suggesting that frequently. I would, I did not really thought of that. I thought that people would be reluctant to do that. But if if people are concerned about missing it, and that may be a bigger problem.
1: Yeah. We've heard stories from all over the country of radiologists just, just throw that in, in their differential diagnosis. By the way, coronavirus cannot be excluded. And it causes enormous alarm amongst all the technologists that right. dealt with the patients. Right. And it, has a lot of, it, it caused a lot of problems. Uh, there, we've, there have been many uh, anecdotal
3: stories of, of that happening. Well, that's very interesting. I think you guys have more sort of, you know, front line experience in me, so I should defer to that.
1: Is there anything in the radiology literature regarding COVID-19 in the last several weeks that has caught your attention as being of interest?
3: I stumbled on a very small series, and it's not really in the radiology literature, about ACE2 receptors. Now, ACE2 receptors, just like SARS-bound to cells via the ACE2 receptor, um, and so does COVID-19, and I think that's pretty well established. I think the issue that I don't know the answer to is a very, you know a study of eight patients suggested there might be some ethnic variation in the amount of ace2 receptors in people's type 2 alveolar cells and other people have you know questioned whether there might be a difference in ace2 receptor density in children compared to adults mm-hmm. i am not a pathologist i don't know the answers to those questions but going forward as we look at the distribution of the disease around the world those are going to be important questions for instance you know there's relatively few cases reported in africa Mm-hmm. is that a difference in reporting and testing, or is that really less susceptible to this virus? I don't I don't think we know yet, but I think mm-hmm. that's going to be something of interest. And it's interesting to me from a radiologic standpoint in that this virus tends to cause, you know, and you guys, again, know far better than I, a picture that's not, it's not wildly dissimilar to, to SARS. Um, and it has the same receptor binding pattern. And SARS also tended to not cause very much in the way of small airway disease. I mean, in mm-hmm. terms of tree and bud opacities. This ACE2 receptor may turn out to be of interest in terms of uh, how the virus affects populations and even how the distribution of radiologic findings. Although I think that a lot smarter people who look into this more deeply are going to figure that out in the future. Mm-hmm.
2: It'll be fascinating to see what kind of groundbreaking research really comes out of all this.
3: Yeah, no, I think there sh- there's going to be some, hopefully, stuff that really helps us a lot in the future. For sure,
2: Yeah. Looking
1: towards the future, what can we do as a field to increase the value we as thoracic radiologists add in the diagnosis and management of patients with pulmonary infection in general?
3: And this isn't magic, but I try to teach my residents this and it is in the world where RVUs are you know, we're all RVU driven, for infections particularly, the extra moment or two that you take looking at in the chart is gonna make such a profound difference. Mm. Even if it's a little bit more nuanced, for instance, if you were to see getting away from like emerging infections mm-hmm. in the setting of, say, extensive ground glass opacities, if you, the difference between knowing that the person is HIV positive versus a bone marrow transplant recipient is going to change your differential a lot.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Or whether they're on prophylactic uh, antibiotics for, for, you know, whether it's PCP or for CMV. And so I think if we want to do a good job, in helping clinicians with infection, it helps to have a good, easily searchable electronic medical record because the history in that in infection is just so key. Mm-hmm. So that would be my pitch, I think, that somehow if we're going to have AI helping us, it'd be nice to have that if the AI was searching the medical history and giving us key terms to help us be smarter with our differential as opposed to necessarily in the the setting of infection, looking for, you know, image analysis. That's
2: great. Dr. Kitai, we like to end a lot of our podcasts with this question. Uh, What would you like to accomplish in the remainder of your career? You've already accomplished so much. Do you have any uh, professional goals for yourself from here on out?
3: The most enjoyment I get is if I can, and I really do mean this, if I can help young folks get a chance to, to be successful in thoracic radiology. And I mean, you know, for those people that like, you know, research to see if I can help with that in any way, there's a quote for the guy who used to run Bell Labs. And he said that it's amazing how much you can get accomplished as long as you don't care who gets the credit. I think about that. And we're trying to help people that, that if you keep that in mind, you can get a lot done. Thank you
1: so much. That's a, that's a terrific point to keep in mind. Well, we're, we're extremely appreciative of your time today and uh, cannot thank you enough for your insight.
3: All right, guys. Thanks again. Thank you
2: so much. Stay safe out there. Okay, you too. I'll, and you guys stay safe. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for listening to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that journeys through the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. We hope you have enjoyed listening and look forward to seeing you next time.